Hello, welcome to the New Stack Makers, a podcast where we talk about at scale application development, deployment, and management. Armory enables enterprise companies to ship better software faster through trusted, reliable, safe, and secure deployments. At its core, Armory is powered by the open source software Spinnaker. Armory and the new stack are under common control. Hey everyone, Alex Williams, founder of the new stack here. We are talking about cybersecurity. We're talking about the SBOM, the software bill of materials. We are going to have a conversation that I think will be interesting to people who are thinking about DevOps, DevSecOps, but not just in, a, in, a, you know, in the private world, but in the public world, in, in government itself. Joining me is Jim Douglas, who is our, my co-host today, and Jim is CEO at Armory. Morning, Alex. Hey, Jim. Uh, Patrick Highland, client executive at VMware. Hey, Patrick. Hey, good morning. Thomas Bosser, president of Trinity Cyber. Hey, Thomas. Good morning. And Chensi Wang, managing partner at Rain Capital. Hey, Chensi. Hi, Alex. Listen, um, I would just like to start off just by acknowledging that we are in a very different time right now uh, with the uh, with the war in Ukraine, and I think that's on everyone's mind. And I had a conversation Chensi, with Chensi yesterday about this very topic. And I think it, it's important to just uh, uh, be very open about it. And uh, because the topic here today is very much pertinent to what's happening in, in, in Europe and Russia. So, Chensi, maybe you could talk about, you know, what your experiences have been in, in, in working with people who are in Ukraine. And uh, what does it reflect upon you right now as we enter this conversation? Yeah, it's very interesting because I have a company whose uh, uh, executives are in Ukraine um, and they are prevented from leaving the country. The CEO and CTO are inside the war zone um, and they're still trying to run the company, the business. And uh, in uh, the form, for most part, they're doing a great job and, and business as usual. But the company is donating, uh, because it's a cybersecurity company, they're donating 25% of the staff time to help Ukraine government do cyber defense. Uh, so I'm very proud of the team and I've been talking to them, but it's, it's a very surreal experience to be talking about business with, with a team that is operating from the war zone. So that's a gist of it. So Jim, uh, I wanted to just follow up with you and you know, you're, you work with Armory. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about Armory. And you know, and you have a lot of experience here. One of the questions that I think we're really asking ourselves is, uh, you know, in, in, in the uh, world that I've been in over the past eight years and watching the you know, container technologies really take center stage is uh, the portability that they offer, um, but also how it's really... Uh, helped uh, ripen the DevOps culture. And now we're seeing security really becoming almost that last piece that really needs to be integrated into uh, continuous uh, workflows. Now, I'm curious in your perspective about that overall, and how does that translate to you and what we're seeing in uh, cybersecurity and, uh, you know, and protection at the federal level? A couple of things, you know, on a look back basis, one of the challenges at the federal level, I think, is there was this thought process that the only way to be truly secure was you were down at bare metal with VMs, right? And 
if that's your point of view, this whole notion that you're going to go to an open set of technologies that are perceived to be less secure um, is just a non-starter. And I think that's been, you know, if you look at open source perpetuation uh, within more of the federal and public sectors, that's been one of the things that's really held it back. Um, you couple that with, you know, there's two notions you'll hear about, and Tom could probably echo on this, um, the notion of chain of custody and chain of province. So, you know, every bit of software, hardware, understanding where that came from and understanding who's touched it along the path. Um, that just hasn't existed in the software world for a long time, especially in open source. It wasn't a construct that existed and made that domain comfortable. So you combine those two factors and you just haven't seen, um, as I said, just the explosion of open source technologies um, like Kubernetes and other orchestration capabilities in that domain. It's changing, right? They're going to get there as DevSecOps practices and capabilities evolve, but it's been one of the things that I think has really held back leveraging more of the, if you will, the advanced technologies that are emerging out of premium companies, but then getting pushed out into community to really leverage the power of open source as a development model. No, I wanted to go to Patrick first, but I would also just like to say to our to our audience out there, you are welcome to ask questions. Please ask your questions. We really want to hear from you. Um, about your questions about modernization, about the software bill of materials issues that we're seeing, especially now with the executive order from the president. Uh, Patrick, uh, over to you. Yeah, no, great point, Alex. Looking at the portability of the workload and you know, dealing with our cyber customers, what, what does portability mean all the way out to the edge inside the data center? And one of the real big shifts that we're seeing from you know my sector that I cover from the Department of Defense is Security, big piece of that, but it is workload, workload, workload. Guess what, guys? More workload. And how do we secure that workload? And with the portability right behind that, we're seeing a massive, massive shift to a multi-cloud capability here to really host you know, those Kubernetes clusters. And when you look at containerization that was previously brought up, you know, it's complex, right? With nodes and clusters and persistent volumes and containers wrapping that around with pods and multi- deployments across the board, how do we manage all of that? How do we you know, put that from one cloud, from an Oracle side to an AWS side to you know, all these different public clouds down and manage to your own on-prem cloud? And that leads to a couple different questions of you know, who is best positioned to help manage the open source community to do that DevSecOps and that development and really bring in a, a trusted group, kind of like what you have, Alex, to really help secure and lock down those vendors, especially when it comes to enterprise workload management. I'm going to weigh in with a, a few basics here. Open source is not bad. In fact, open source is good, and sometimes it gets a bad name. Um, I don't know. I, I, this morning, getting ready for this, I was seeing on my own internal ops channel that there might be yet another vulnerability that that we're dealing with. I didn't even catch a name yet. You know, naming's hard in this space, but looks like it locks up the uh, server and causes a kind of a, a terminal uh, spiral, you know, infinite spiral loop. Uh, but we had Heartbleed in 2014. Everybody said, oh, man, this is the end of open source. Uh, and, you know, the vulnerability had exploits that created problems. And we saw Log4j recently. But, you know, how long both of those open source uh, code bases were in uh, productive use before those vulnerabilities hit? You know, years, almost a decade in one case. So um, open source is fine. And compare it to proprietary software and how many times it's been exploited and you're going to find pretty much a tie, uh, you'll probably see open source 
producing more benefit to society than than the proprietary stuff. But it's not an inherent issue. I think the cybersecurity spin here creates the problem. Some components of open source you know, contain vulnerabilities just like anything else, but there are some uh, kind of rules and responsibilities that we have to work on around responsible disclosure in certain instances. I think that's kind of where we're, where we're headed here. Um, with respect to the cloud, that's a little bit of a layer on top of it. I think there's a, a big benefit. You know, I'm the guy that wrote the executive order that told a federal government to, to lock, stock, and barrel move to cloud services because of its uh, uneven approach prior to that. But the idea there is to do it responsibly. Once we move everything from compute and storage and I.O., kind of input, output, and sharing uh, into cloud services, I'm afraid we might overcorrect a little bit and lose a little bit of insight. And, and to me, that's the bottom line on cybersecurity today. Most operators need better tools to gain some more contextual visibility into their network traffic, and they don't have them. And funny enough, I think they're probably going to get them through open source means faster than they might through the slower moving traditional investment means. And I know that we've got people here that develop software and that invest in companies. I'd be interested in hearing their perspective. From my perspective, we've got really cool capabilities in the company that I'm running, uh, but I see how slow it can be to get the investor and profit model to catch up with the innovative spirit of our code writers. Well, I'm the one who invests in companies. Right. <laughs> so I can jump in with the, uh, my perspective. Uh, sitting in Silicon Valley, we um, you know, work with uh, early stage innovative companies all the time. Open source is a critical, critical strategy. Uh, I would say a central strategy to any new company these days because it really accelerates your development life cycle. Uh, in fact, I don't think any VCs in, in my circle would invest in the company if they are doing complete full stack development uh, uh, down to the bare metal, unless they're doing government work, right? Because it's just so much slower and takes a longer time to really um, package everything. And in today's world, you're doing multiple deployments a day, right? 50, 100 deployments a day. And if you don't leverage on already uh, developed open source libraries, you're not going to compete. Now, that said, um, open source is proliferating. Uh, we need to know where they are. <laughs> we need to know which software uses which library. Um, and SBOM is one method for you to get there. And I think the executive order and, and some of the industry pressure these days, uh, especially from the medical device uh, community, to really get a handle on the visibility of uh, open source usage in my software, in my critical software, is, is great trend. And we should continue that, but it's actually not as easy thing to do, right? So uh, complexity in dependency, for instance, it's not easy to dig all the way down to the leaf nodes of every library and say, hey, I know where this comes from and I know what the version of this library is. And especially, um, you know, Alex, you brought up the geopolitical conflict we, we're facing right now. Um, in fact, there's a lot of discussions today on who are the open source contributors to your software, right? Do you know where they sit? Do you, do you know they're not nation state actors? We don't. So how do we get that kind of knowledge and, 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 you know, through our governance is one of the questions we're facing. 
I think that's what I was trying to allude to before, Alex. That's the rub. I mean, open source is by far the most efficient development strategy, right? It's not a business model. It's not a go-to-market model. It's just a very efficient development strategy. And as Chancey said, if you're not leveraging that, you're not being effective. But it goes back to that chain of profits. Where do those sources come from? And so understanding that, using tools to really understand how to create a build material out of software. And then I think from a government standpoint, being more involved at the community level. Right. It's a great way to actually ensure that you're getting better quality code and you're getting more safe, secure code in critical communities is to have governments more involved there rather than going and trying to create technology from scratch. Right. That was the DARPA model forever ago. Um, that's not the way innovation occurs today, but it can have a big impact through participation in communities. And as I said, really trying to drive um, better quality code and more secure code. And as Chancey said, understanding source and from a government standpoint, you know, you always have an opportunity to configure code, even if you download bits from open source. So you can pick and choose which parts of the code you want to use and you can augment it with proprietary things if you need to from a security standpoint. But as she said, starting top down or bottom up, however you look at it, it's not an effective approach. It can't be the way forward. Patrick, what are your thoughts? Yeah, you know, just to dovetail off of that and having the experience working, you know, directly in the government in a capability development organization for the Marine Corps, it's a balancing act, right? Where we've got open source software on one side of the house, but open source it kind of people think it's free and zero cost. And when it comes to the actual implementation and integration of multiple open source capabilities, the government is all is very reliant on organizations like big system integrators or companies out of Silicon Valley that have the know-how or, or, or claim to have the know-how to pull all of these different open source capabilities together. On the other side of the coin from a balancing act, there are paid for you know, software organizations directly out of Silicon Valley that are really, really good at doing the integrations of open source capabilities along with the APIs to mirror the different capabilities that a for-profit company has to plug in, hey, maybe we don't want vendor lock-in in certain areas and have the ability to pull through some of the different open source capabilities. So it's it's been a true balancing act. And I think our you know, bigger customer base and people you know, watching the, this webcast here really have to ask the ultimate question. And how, does, how do they choose best of breed capabilities based on total cost of ownership combined with best of suite capabilities that kind of narrow it down to pull the open source married with for-profit organizations that truly have awesome best of breed capabilities to make the mirror and pull it together to truly benefit the organization. You know, people think it's free. They also think it's not supported. This is a problem we had when I served in government, right? That's that's not true, as Patrick just said, but it's also a difficult thing for us to start sharing vulnerabilities with people responsible for, you know, um, appropriate remediation. So I, the more money and the more time and effort we can put into the organizations that uh, support open source, uh, I don't want to make a plug for anybody, but, you know, Red Hat, Conical, that kind of thing, th those types of um, support operations are going to be key, especially for critical enterprises. I, I don't, I don't hear much about how the government is starting to work from the ground up at all. Really, it seems like very much of a top-down environment, and I don't really hear m much hope here, to be honest. I mean, you know, you know, we're facing a, a world that has incredible military uh, 
build up in you know certain parts of the world, incredible, incredible tech, uh, the logical build up uh, uh, in uh, certain parts of the world. A lot of it is built on you know on warfare, you know, and so if we, you know, I I'm just curious in comparison, what have you learned about how how you know technology organizations be they you know, uh, uh, you know, with, 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 with armies that are, um, you know, building out malware or, or whatever it is, do they follow, you know, how are they building that software themselves? Like how are, you know, how, how, how are we learning from that? And what is the counterforce? Because, you know, I'm curious how we're even going to catch up unless we kind of take an opposite, you know, an opposite uh, angle on it where we're like, looking from a collaborative point of view, because that seems like to be what we've been able to at least start to develop here in the United States through, uh, through what we've seen through the Linux community, um, what we've seen through uh, the, the, uh, the emergence of the cloud native community through uh, Kubernetes and its, uh, and its emergence as the uh, distributed, uh, you know, infrastructure uh, distributed layer for, co for companies on top of, you know, scalable cloud cloud services. I, I'm just I, I I'm kind of stuck here. I, I'm I'm just trying to you know get a better handle on things because it seems like it's 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 a it's a pretty uneven playing field from my point of view right now. Yeah, I, I think Army Futures Command has really taken major steps forward. Where you know just heard uh, a factory cited the other day where sixty percent of the Army's budget is moving towards modernization. And ultimately, if you look at some of the big questions that the Army has directly asked with Futures Command is they asked, who has the most comprehensive ecosystem to support interoperability, ultimately to avoid vendor lock-in? And they have partnered directly with Silicon Valley to do this massive open source integration combined with Silicon Valley capabilities here in the form of Army Software Factory, where they are pushing out applications from 90 days to full continuous ATO. And they are just pumping these things out with Silicon Valley help, taking a mindset from a soldier. Hey, here's how we can streamline an application and here's how we could build line or streamline a application to enable the army cyber warfighter or ground warfighter, or, you know, joint really any joint all domain warfighter. And they are rolling these applications out and big DOD as a whole is really looking at that model to revolutionize the, the cyber and warfighting force as a whole. So it's been a great good news story with Futures Command. Isn't, isn't that a recognition of the problem, though, too? Unless you have the purchasing power of the Army, you're not going to avoid the business model of vendor lock-in. That's the trend. That's where we're headed. Alex, I share a little of your pessimism. We've got a trust problem, too. We've got both open source you know, vulnerabilities available to the world, but also proprietary vulnerabilities being shared in supposedly responsible ways in advance with trusted partners that are our stated adversaries. So, uh, you know, I found trust to be the hardest thing as I left government and saw some of the partners that I used to work closely with sharing advanced inf information, vulnerability information with, um, you know, Russian and Chinese companies that didn't have our interests at heart, you know, and, and, and found that I couldn't do anything about it, even with government power. Um, it's, I'm, I'm sure at some point we're going to pivot here to the to the bigger question, but we're going to start seeing the fracturing along geopolitical lines that we see today creep into, if we haven't already, the fracturing of the Internet. 
And those different rules and different trust circles are going to create increasing problems for this model. And vendor lock-in is, is, is already with us. So um, this, the reason I'm frustrated at this stage is that I think we're going in the opposite direction. Yeah, yeah. I think that some of the political uh, geopolitical challenges are seeping into the software and open source world today, right? And, and it's hard to predict where we're going to be a year from now. Um, but what I want to go back to, you know, what, what the U.S. government is doing or possibly will be doing. Um, I like where CISA is, uh, is doing today. I, uh, not, can you just for clarify what that is for people out there who may not be familiar? Uh, you know, I'm blanking on the acronym. Um, what is it? It's a, a Jenny Sley is the new director. CISA is the, the organization that is for government and, uh, private industry partnership okay. on cybersecurity. Who can help me on the acronym here? Yeah, the, it's okay. the cyber cybersecurity infrastructure security agency, and it's the it, it's existed in different forms before, but it's the part of the Department of Homeland Security that um, that is supposed to look out for more than just federal network security, but also for the rest of us. Yeah. So, so Jen's put together a, an excellent panel of experts as a, um, a advisory boards. And those experts come from different companies, large and small, and some are innovators, some are uh, large company executives having different viewpoints. And they just now put together a panel of technical advisory boards, um, the, the early advisory boards uh, with folks in business, international policy, and even journalists. Uh, but the, the new technical advisory boards are focusing on hackers, um, specific technical experts, I'm very hopeful that that um, Jen's organization is going to figure out some way for the private industry expertise to help more with what government is doing in cybersecurity, but also build this feedback loop where the policy is going to come out in a little bit more expedient fashion to help us in governing our software deployments, software policies. Um, we'll see. I'm, I'm hopeful. Yeah. One of the things that I am too, it's great having involvement from industry. I've been to this movie before. If you still have people coming from the services and coming from the ICs that actually ultimately run the programs to control it, they take input and say, yes, great. And then they go down the same path they went down before. And then also, you know, something that's near and dear to Tom, my hearts is just the whole procurement process and how it drives requirements from the beginning to really support that level of thinking. That's got to change. In addition to being open to calling on experts and getting involved, you also have to look at who owns the implementation on the other side. And I think that's one of the things that I hesitate when I see these actions. I love them, but I also want to see the action on the other side. You know, it's almost as if we're colluding the two concepts together. Open source is a broad meaning. And for me, even in the security space, I'm sometimes troubled to see how much the driving requirements, whether it's government or private buyers, are about speed and efficiency and not about security. In fact, there's a kind of a conscious trade-off that's melted away into the background, and it's kind of a subconscious trade-off now that I see increasing. And so um, it's not really about open source being good or bad. It's about a skills gap and a, and a requirement-setting problem that favors the vendor and not the buyer. I'm increasingly seeing buyers have no idea, earthly idea, how any of their tools work, much less work together. And and in order to determine whether there's um, kind of a systemic problem, 
Uh, and this is where I hope Jen succeeds. Jen is uh, eminently qualified and doing a great job thus far. I think the government tools are often blunt. And if she isn't careful, and I know she's aware of this, she'll create a um, kind of a regulatory compliance world that takes a longer time that doesn't speed up. So, so guidance from her has to be balanced with requirements. And I think it's her daily challenge. But I think also in the, in the private industry, for instance, um, you know, I'm in touch with CISOs on a daily basis. And we're not seeing as much of a, a push in industry as I thought we ought to be doing um, on, you know, requirements on SBOM. So, so I asked some of my friends who are uh, in the software producing side, I said, how many of your customers are asking you for SBOM today? Right. Uh, you know, SaaS providers or software product providers. I would say maybe 15% today that I right. have heard about. That's mm-hmm. not enough. Right. So we need to have this groundswell of um, requirements and demand coming from the customer side, buying side, including the government, to push our vendors to do a better job. And then that will have downstream effects. And today I'm seeing very little of it. Uh, we need more. Chancy, I'd say a lot of cases yeah. where they're even asking at 15 percent, they're not quite sure why and what they're looking for. It's just this topical, and it sounds like something they should do. There's a few that are dialed in, really understand it, but a lot of them are just thinking it's the right thing to do rather than understanding what they should be asking for and how to think about using that information. Just one very quick point. It's a nascent field, right? The CISO is telling me, okay, even if all my products come with SBOM, I don't know where they are. I don't know how to manage manage them. I don't know how to read them. Exactly. Yep, exactly. So, so David asked a question about Spectre, um, you know, and the news that really it is still a threat, even after, you know, supposedly, supposedly being resolved in 2018. And his question is, what does that suggest about our collective ability to concretely address vulnerabilities across the whole tech stack? Maybe someone could take a shot at, uh, at, at what Spectre is and then elaborate from there. And then... I do want to say out there, please ask your questions. We have one more coming up right after this from Myra Krishna. So if there's anyone else out there who would like to ask a question, please do so. Uh, but uh, why don't we uh, why don't we start why don't we start with uh, you know who, who really knows about Spectre? We got, who can who can answer this question? I, I thought I thought Spectre was a was a uh, vulnerability at the at the microprocessor level. It was, and um, this so is... I'm trying to figure out what the so you know, resolving some of those problems are even more difficult and involve more geopolitical analysis. And you know we've got the whole trusted foundry failures of our past reinventing uh, themselves today with custom foundries starting to crop up in the United States. The president of the United States mentioned an Intel foundry being developed in the United States in the State of the Union address. It's almost like a a world I thought we'd never get to, but. At the same time, it's not going to be in place in time, and it won't meet most of our needs. I think Taiwan and South Korea make somewhere over 90, 92% of the 10 nanometer or smaller microprocessors that are useful in, in high tech. Not that there's not other forms of processors, but in that space, the truly next generation microprocessor development capabilities are both directly within the sphere of Chinese control and the ability to put implants on a 10 nanometer or smaller um, you know, physical microchip is virtually impossible. So, you know, somebody, uh, the founder of my company, used to design those uh, chips, and he said it's like finding a needle in a stack of needles. Uh, it's, uh, it's the kind of thing that 
is a harder thing to remediate. So I'm a little bit uh, fuzzy on the specter question, but if it is a, a question having to do with the microprocessor level vulnerability, those have sh- just kind of longer tails for remediation. And it wasn't firmware on chips, so it was a much different domain. I actually think it is pertinent because if you think you bring it up a level, like one of the things like at uh, at Linux, in the Linux community, what you hear a lot about is how much attention they put into their releases, correct? You know, they're always putting a lot of focus. But then if the the people who are building distributions off the releases then have... uh, you know, start to, you know, start to have bugs and stuff. That's where the real problems begin, right? Because, you know, if, uh, you know, if there's a memory issue, for instance, and that, you know, Intel is discovered, um, that becomes a real problem. And so it's not just, uh, you know, it's, it starts with, you know, starts with the release, but then it's also often the distributions that, uh, that become the issue. And I think that's, you know, I think there's some, some, uh, you know, some concern for exploitation in that respect, how it relates to software development, I, you know, I lead, lead to the exploit. I think the challenge of software is it's more exponential, right? In software, you've got only, or hardware, excuse me, a certain number of sources. Obviously, they ship a lot of chips and a lot of systems, but there's not a lot of sources, right? So you can, you know, drive the change to remediate at the source. With software, and, you know, if you go back to open source and the challenge is there, everybody's leveraging it, right? So it's exponentially bigger problem. And you really can't narrow down quickly um, how far it's permeated. And we saw that, you know, with some of the issues we had, like Jada 4. It gets kind of academic, doesn't it? Because we get to see the remediations in open source uh, and we don't get to see how they've been resolved in proprietary software. So um, pros and cons here. I still think that the application of the security market is a unique place where there is probably a hybrid answer for certain networks. Yeah. And And in most productivity software, uh, and commercial applications, it's a little bit different. Um, but but the, the the bottom line is that the security operator, the infosec community, just lacks visibility. I mean, you know, we've got a couple of companies here, including mine, that are in existence with big R and D investment dollars around developing new cutting edge tools to develop visibility into that software network traffic. That's what people lack. Once they discover their problems, the remediation process is kind of six one half dozen the other between open source and proprietary. So, Tom, yeah, I kind of want to take a different approach on that because I look at, you know, working for a large software vendor out of Silicon Valley, and we are directly held accountable for any security concerns, vulnerabilities, and it is our direct responsibility to ensure that those vulnerabilities are immediately patched, customers are notified, and remediation steps takes place. There's almost a contractual obligation to do so, and we you know, do that not only on the best interests of our of the the customer as a whole, but we as a for profit organization, if we are not patching and we've got security vulnerabilities, guess what? Shareholder volume is going to fall. People aren't going to want to buy, and customers aren't going to want to buy from us. So we directly patch, maintain, do everything we can to minimize and, and close any of those security vulnerabilities. On the flip side, you know, really kind of asking the question to the larger group, who holds the open source community really at bay or who holds the open source community accountable for vulnerabilities that are, are found? I know there's like the, the open source community has no financial skin in the game to be held accountable. Yeah, that's, that's the support mechanism I talked about earlier where you have to have the funded mechanisms like Conical and others that try to support open source, right? I'm sorry, I cut, I cut Chancey off. No, that's okay. 
Um, open source it inherently bottoms up, right? So there is no single entity that is responsible. And and take security question aside, even the reliability of the software is not guaranteed. You know, it's not like you go to the upstream project, you download this latest version, it's guaranteed to work. It doesn't. Uh, and, and there's no, you know, it's a, it's a different game than proprietary software. So what happened is if you really want to have assured reliability and security of software, you, you work with somebody who is going to guarantee that. Um, somebody who may be working with the open source software, but they could uh, give you a reliable build. They could give you the secure version. They take care of all the new vulnerabilities that's come out. And, you know, Red Hat is a, a business based on that model. And there are others, um, not to say every piece of open source software has that, but you're going to have to find a way to have <laughs> reliability and security built into the open source software. And the community itself isn't incentivized to do that from the ground up. So some third party will have to do it. That's to your point. That's why every you know, regulated or compliance-based private companies go to commercial companies to support open source, but they insist on um, some path to code being open or open source if it's built proprietary. And the same thing with federal government. That's what they want. At the end of the day, they want interoperability and they want innovation. Yeah. And they drive okay. I love okay. things that are open source but with the commercial level of support, because that way it gives uh, an interoperability um, sort of a, a, a framework, right? And and it's better for everyone if you have the commercial level support, yet have the visibility. And that's what we need. Um, but that is, we're not quite there yet. <laughs> I wonder I wonder if we're not quite there yet. It does seem to be increasingly the reflection of the, of the world, right? There is a hybrid combination of, uh, proprietary software tools that have some elements of open source components, and they, like 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 Patrick's uh, responsible company, then serve as the responsible supporting vendor role that 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 can make sure that there's some, I guess, accountability in the structure. So at the end of the day, it seems like, yeah, go ahead, Chancy. I bet Patrick, you guys don't know all the open source libraries that you're using. You would be more so. so we, from a VMware perspective, talking to Google, are the number two open source um, provider behind the scenes and directly support that open source community as such. But what about the libraries? What she was asking is, do you guys understand kind of all this source for every library you've got that you guys leverage in your code? Because like everybody, you guys leverage. If there's something available out there, you're not going to go rebuild it. You'll get it from open source. Yeah, the, that question, I would have to default to more of our technical side of the house. I'll, I'll, I'll defend the integrations. If there's integration that we take into our software, I would I would take a very good educated guess that we maintain those libraries. And I know they do. I could tell you. I, I was going to say, I'll defend VMware on this. You know, for our company, we do. It, it, yours is bigger. So no one person possesses all of that knowledge uh, as you get larger. But there's a fleet of people dedicated to nothing but that knowledge. And it's um, sometimes frustratingly tedious because... It, it, there's, you, a, there's a requirement that the, at some at some point, sometimes, at least in my experience, exceeds the benefit that tends to take on a regulatory feel to it. But do you know the actors who are building the you know the components in the library? Do you know who they are? Well, li- listen, those those include us and and, and the they VMware include us, but they like, include a lot of people too. I think that's Chensi's point. No, Chensi's absolutely right. But I, 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 think, I 
I don't know. I think it's very difficult for any large software provider today to say, I know every single library that is built into my code from where and who's contributing. Who, who did it? Well, I think the last point is where it falls down because you do. And I've sold a lot into both defense and non-defense government. And we did have to provide that level of detail, but what you can't provide once again is the word originated. That's the hard part. That, that's right. But, and, you, you, know, but we, you do have to track, as I said, that chain of command where every bit came from, yeah. where it resides in your code. And I know VMware does that. And, yeah, and Matt, yeah, yeah, we do that. Do it now. And, you know, it's directly tied to us selling to the federal government with you should see the investment that a for-profit organization such as VMware has to go through to get the JITIC approvals, to get on the DISA APL, to get all these different capabilities that we offer through to the federal government. Back to the flip side, who from the open source community is doing the investment? Where are the JITIC approvals for open source capabilities out there? Is it taking place? And I think that's almost a, a double standard where we spend the time to develop the hardware, or I'm sorry, develop the software tied to our hardware partners that is approved by big picture DISA for all of DOD. Where is DOD looking at, you know, the software libraries from the open source? How do they get access to that? And Chesie, it goes well, back to what we talked a, about there, earlier. You, on, wait, hold, hold on a second. Access. Let me just, let me, there, we have a question that I want to ask because it's, uh, you know, it's pertinent to what we're talking about here. Um, and the question comes from Myrash Krishna. And I had this up just a minute ago, um, uh, but he, really what he's talking about is how open source opens up, you know, so many avenues of exploitation. And, you know, when you're thinking about the software supply chain, there's so many ways things can be exploited, you know, if it's driven by uh, open source. Uh, and so he's, he's actually really challenging, I think, this assumption that open source you know, from this bottom-up perspective is really uh, the way to go because, you know, you can have a, folks who may be uh, developing a project, they may, you know, what's to stop them from becoming a bad actor, you know, and what about multiple big enterprises? How do you prioritize that particular government for particular government's departmental needs? I mean, I think that's a real interesting question. I mean, one of the, one of the, well, things I keep thinking about is when we were doing some research back in 2014 on OpenStack, Huawei was one of the top contributors across the board, right? And uh, and so you know that that for us is like, well, that's curious. Like, you know, what what is that, what is Huawei building into their code that uh, uh, that you know we should be aware of, or you know, really for any other other company out there? So I'm curious on this question. Who would like to uh, at, you know answer? Maybe maybe. Uh, Maybe maybe Tom or Patrick, maybe you want to start. Yeah. Hey, Tom, I'll take a, the first stab at this. And, you know, I carry this slide with me, and I know it's hard to read on this. But, you know, wherever I go, we are directly working with NSA. You know, this is all on class, tied to their zero trust architecture implementation. And there are seven key pillars that I think mitigate some of these risks here, where when it comes to zero trust, how do we define it between the user? How do we define it between the device, the network, the application directly tied to the workload? All that data is associated with the entire arch architecture. Now we're talking visibility and analytics as to who's doing what and where. And the, the final pillar here is automation and orchestration. So Fort Meade at an unclassified level is doing a ton of really good work 
to minimize, hey, we know that there's a valid need for open source architectures and implementations. How do we minimize some of those, those security concerns, knowing that for paid for, for profit software, open source, there will always be security challenges in the mix. How do we minimize, um, you know, the, the danger to that? And that's where I think the NSA and even DISA on the Thunderdome side, a lot of really good work to minimize that software risk. What we're asking is kind of the great unanswerable question, right? It's kind of the, the rub between open source and security is this constant tension. So the question is a very good one. And the point up front that the government views it as a vulnerability or as a, as a, as a potential security risk is true. But think of the other side that we've just painted. We've created a, a slow procurement and installation process that is so slow that we can't keep up with the not only innovation cycles, but the adversary's innovation cycle. So we're, in a sense, using 10-year-old technology because we can't get our minds around trusting today's technology. And then we discover, I don't know, the vulnerability in OpenSSL code that was Heartbleed in 2014. That, that was 10-year-old technology, well-trusted because of the time in, in use. And we all of a sudden panicked. And, you know, I think there's a set of answers that have to do with some security tools giving visibility into network traffic that are not necessarily uh, open source, known to the world. Um, some capabilities that give the defender the ability to essentially uh, take control of their outcomes. And I, I, you know, I don't want to dance around what Trinity Cyber does, but there are things that you can do from a government perspective that essentially strike a hybrid balance. But if you go with this you know, overly regulatory world where you just look for vulnerabilities retrospectively you know, in the heart of that question, I think we're going to create a regulatory um, unintended delay consequence that's going to create a lot of out-of-life cycle solutions that stay in use longer than they should. On top of the already broken procurement process. So I think that, you know, it's it's a hard uh, issue to solve uh, completely, but we're making some progress, both uh, in the public sector and in private sector. But if you think, think about the whole software life cycle, right? So you, if you think about the point of deployment as to the left of that is the development of, uh, time, to the right of that is the, the uh, operational, the production time. So there are things you can do that, that both in both sides of, uh, of this picture that we need to do more. Uh, we talked about how to get more visibility into the library that's been built in. That is into the left of the deployment time, right? So all the hygienes and the best practices we can build in, including SBOM, including all the management capabilities and governance policies, or maybe regulations that can come to that. But I'm seeing a lot of to the right of the deployment time in production space, uh, uh, in production time. What do you do when a um, library is found non-kosher or violating policy, there is no good tool today to let you directly pull that thing out and replace it. Now, obviously, for some critical function, you maybe you can't replace it right away, but there has to be a control function in runtime allows you to say, hey, you know, <laughs> something is not going well. We need to either isolate it, we need to respond, we need to replace, and that is not done. It's really what hard. about feature flags, you know, and like, uh, you know, and putting, you know, using feature flags more effectively? You know, well, feature flags can help, but it doesn't, doesn't help. I mean, if, you, if I have a vulnerable library built to 15 levels deep 
into my software. And I don't know what is dependency, the functional dependency, right? And if I want to replace it, do I build a, a workaround uh, or do I replace the library? Is it clean? Can I replace the library? And that's a very difficult question to ask. Uh, so, and- how, so how do you create this? I mean, is this a, a question of observability and, you know, in understanding, you know, more about, you know, the patterns or, or is it coming down to trust and verification or is it both? Observability is a part of it, a piece of the puzzle. And, and guess what? A lot of software deploying today, uh, sometimes 70% of the code, the lines of code are not used. Do we need those? Do we need those libraries? We don't. And, and how do we know that they're not used? How do we get rid of them? Hence, reduce the surface of, of uh, 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 exploitation before runtime. That's one question. Another one is how do we become more agile in runtime? You know, microservices can help, right? So yeah, that, That's what I was going to jump in. A lot of it comes back to how you architect the code. Part of it, as she talked about, was eliminating dead code. The other part is just taking dependencies out of code through microservices. There's a way to remediate on the fly. I mean, folks like, um, you know, our mobile network operators, they can do hitless patching anytime they want. Right? It's built into how they do things, but it goes down to the architecture of the code. And if you architect the code wrong, her point is right on. You don't know the dependencies of any particular leaf in that code. You may create a catastrophe that you weren't expecting. So there's not just a graceful rollback you could do that gets rid of the problem. So you've got to spend more time upfront, right kind of cloud native architecture, um, limit the dependencies and understand the dependencies and then have a process where it can roll back quick and you can push code fast uh, to remediate these things. So it's it, it can be done. There's always going to be the chance of a vulnerability, but a lot of it is people just evolving their thinking about how they actually build code. Sounds, it sounds a little trite, but in, in keeping with what was just said, I agree 100%. But you have to prioritize security for those yeah. outcomes. Yeah. And it's just not always baked into the various incentive models of a lot of companies. And sometimes not uh, not for Rain Capital, of course, but for other investor groups, it's not a priority or something they understand. And so they don't allow for the capital necessary to prioritize security and to maintain that kind of awareness. So, you know, we have to have responsible technicians, responsible engineers, responsible operators, a better informed buyer class that understands the priorities. And then you have to have a really well-informed investor base that understands some of these things can either be cheap or they can be secure, but none of it's free. And, you know, it's, uh, at least in my experience, a really nascent you know, com- uh, kind of a com- confluence of those three or four um, knowledgeable groups. We've been, going about 40, we've been going about 45 minutes, so I want to give everyone a last chance to, to, to say anything. Um, so... Uh, was that you, Patrick, who was just chiming in, or, or who was that? I mean, I, I can more than happy to take a shot, and you know, oh, from, Jim, sorry, it's okay. And you know, just, just looking at it, you know, from a, a conclusion perspective, and for the greater audience out there, and you know, a lot of the questions that we see from from our DoD customer base, especially in cyber, and you know, the, the, a lot of back and forth, where you know, the, ultimately the questions that they ask us. Are who are the trusted vendors really in this workspace um, to help us do the integration of the open source capabilities on the DevSecOps platform? And, and how do we manage those workloads knowing that multi-cloud is right around the corner? And who from that multi-cloud capability, who has the most diverse capability of app services and all of the different public clouds out there to your on-prem piece? 
And more often than that, too, you know, from a open source community, like, you know, leveraging the Kubernetes side, we see adoption of cloud where a lot of the cloud vendors are get in the cloud, get in the cloud. You need all this cloud stuff right now. And we often recommend, you know, for application development with the open source community, adopt the cloud at your own pace. Take it slow. Don't let these big cloud providers, you know, force you into using your open source or homegrown analytic capabilities into the cloud. And, you know, two other quick points here. Tom, goes right back to your piece. How are these applications secured? And where is security first and foremost when it comes to on-prem, you know, at the edge, in all, all the different public clouds or private cloud, how are they fundamentally secured? I think that's one of the biggest takeaways out there. And, you know, kind of lastly is looking at the, the four earlier points here as, you know, our federal government customers, who they, the government, I recommend ask who can provide the all encompassing piece of that with security being first and foremost, most importantly, leveraging the, the real power of the open source community while all, you know, preventing that, that vendor lock-in to ensure that flexibility among the different clouds, among the different workloads, amongst the different open source capabilities and community to really pull it all together. I we go to Jim and then to Chancey to, to conclude. Quick, you know, one of my favorite lines from Warfighters, right, is slow is smooth, smooth is fast. It goes back to how you architect code and starting what Tom said, you know, thinking about security from the beginning um, and limiting vulnerabilities in code just based on architecture and what you know about security. And then having a secure deploy capability that allows you to do two things, be able to deploy at really high velocity, but able to remediate at high velocity as well. Um, you need both sides of that equation. I think that's what Chensi was trying to say before. Um, and the last thing is you can never be 100% free of vulnerabilities. It's just not a thing. So, you know, put as much as you can into how you develop code and a remediation process, but um, you've got to take risk at some point. I think that's one of the challenges in the government sector is not understanding where appropriate risk should be taken and then how they actually should deal with risk on the backside. And I think that's where kind of the commercial private sector can really help. And the government's just got to think about that differently. And they've got to, you know, as I said, challenge us in the private sector on what our DevSecOps capability is. And conversely, we've got to turn that into an asset um, in terms of how we create value. I know what I don't want. <laughs> I don't want uh, this whole thing to kill the innovation coming out of open source community. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, we all want the open source community to continue to innovate, continue to lead, um, uh, you know, so the, the bleeding edge of software development and capabilities. Um, what we do want uh, are better set of tools and governance capabilities for us to say, hey, we are going to be uh, leveraging this innovation, but in a informative, in a controlled fashion. And I also would love to see more of the public and private partnership where there is a true requirement, set of requirements from the buying side, from the regulators to help push this thing forward. And, and that's what I want. In conclusion, Tom, do you want to just say anything? I mean, I, we, any any war stories you can tell us from your days at the NSA that reflect Jeez. on our conversation today? Everybody said the right thing. We got to incentivize some risk taking in the name of innovation. You know, I got a million things, I guess, that are on all of our minds right now with Ukraine and Russia. And one of them is that the threats now pretty clearly not just 
uh, profit motive for people that are going to be subject to these increasingly uh, burdensome sanctions, which are appropriate. Uh, in, in geopolitical in nature, which are meant to either spy or, or, or harm other nations. But now we've just got a plain old sabotage motive. So the threat is now expanded into anybody that contributes meaningfully to Western society. And so I think we've got to foot stomp this, take some risk to prevent risk mentality of innovation. Uh, war stories, I don't know. I don't know how much time we've got left. But um, you know, it struck me the other day that the solar winds um breach which was massive in scale and size and i had i had written about it and created a little controversy among other networks that the russians gained access into at a root level in that endeavor were the department of treasuries and so for the last year and a half they've most likely had a pretty decent sense of the sanctions that they might face uh that's a that's a kind of a war fighting advantage if you will and what's so reassuring and pleasing to see is that we're doing more to the russians now than just mandated, compelled uh, sanctions, but rather voluntarily, in, you know, um, you know, you know uh, self-initiated penalties with Goldman Sachs and Cogent pulling out of Russia, literally disconnecting them from the internet. It's got some pros and cons, but uh, I see all of this as being tied together. Cannot overstate the importance of this conversation, even if it was boring to some of, uh, some of us out there that, that, that don't want to hear it anymore. I think this has been a tremendous conversation I think the current administration gets this. I think they're going to do good things to help us all improve. I would just caution them against uh, what we usually do when we regulate, the belief that we can get it to be done quickly. Compliance ends up sometimes introducing time delay. So I've got a pretty good outlook on what we're doing and a pretty dim view of our increasing geopolitical risk. That's a great way to conclude things. I want to thank everyone uh, you know, for being here. Uh, Jim. Thank you so much. Thank you, Alex. Patrick, uh, great to get your perspective there. Thank you. Uh, Thomas, uh, your insights in the, are, are tremendous. Thank you so much. And Chensi, uh, as always, uh, add so much to these conversations. So I want to thank you all uh, for your time today. And thank you to our uh, audience out there who's been watching today. And, and we even got some questions. So thank you for those. And so we look forward to uh, seeing you soon. Thanks for listening. Subscribe on Simplecast to listen to more episodes on the new stack makers. Create and share your favorite audiogram using our Simplecast player. For more articles and great stories, go to the newstack.io.